0: Good morning, good morning, morning. morning. turn in your Bibles if you would to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11 is where we'll be at today, if you don't have a Bible or if your phone is dead, we have some paper copies on the back table, we would be uh, most happy to give one of those to you as a a gift just to hang on to, Uh, and those are going to be in the same translation that I'm preaching out of the ESV, so uh, feel free to grab one of those if you need one. Matthew chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. <clears throat> now, I'm not proud of this, but a couple weeks ago, I got pulled over. I got pulled over. It's never good when you see the red and blue lights in the rearview mirror. And uh, at, the, at the top of the hill by where we live, there is a stop sign at a three-way intersection. I'm having a horrible morning, one of the worst mornings on record, right? And my mind is elsewhere. And I don't blow that stop sign, but I'm definitely not doing the full stop like I should be, right? The officer pulls me over and he was so merciful to me. He said, I am not gonna give you a ticket because of the points it will put on your license, but I am making a note that I gave you a verbal warning and you understand what'll happen if you get pulled over for going through a stop sign again. Yes, officer, I very <laughs> much understand. Okay. Now, we understand something there, right? I commit an offense the first time, the penalty is is light. But if I repeat that same offense again and again, after being told, after being given knowledge and opportunity to change, the punishment's going to be more severe, right? We understand this with our kids too, right? Our kids do something wrong, we tell them, hey, don't do that again. They repeat the uh, offense and the consequences increase, right? Uh, they, They get steeper and steeper and steeper. It's a battle of the wills at that point, right? But what we understand is that the more a person has been warned about their actions, the more responsibility they have to change their actions, right? We understand this. This morning in our text in Matthew, we see Jesus confronting the cities of his day for their unbelieving unrepentance. And at the same time, Jesus' words have implications for us too. As Jesus deals with their refusal to change, to repent after being given knowledge about Christ and opportunity, we see the seriousness of God's judgment. It's not a happy passage. It's not an encouraging passage per se. But it is a necessary passage. And it's a, a passage in which we will be confronted with the question that each one of us must deal with. What is my response to Jesus Christ? What is my response to Jesus Christ? Is it mere interest? Uh, is, it, is it one of confessing Him as Lord with my lips but without genuine repentance and change? Or is it a Holy Spirit produced response of faith that is demonstrated through repentance? What is my response to to Christ? Am I a repentant person? That's the question that Jesus' words pose to us today. Let's read our text starting in verse 20, down to verse 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, than for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give uh, our attention to the Lord as we come to him in prayer and ask for his help. Our Lord and our God, we come to this challenging text this morning, a serious and sobering text, but one that is necessary for us to hear. Uh, Lord, you have put this in your word so that generation after generation would hear the teaching of Christ. Lord, that we would be warned by it. And Lord, that ultimately we would be reminded of your grace in calling people to repentance. For Lord, that is so different than what the law would demand. We fail and we die. We refuse to repent and we die. We do not change and we die. And yet you are gracious, Lord, to extend to us a call to repent and to find life. So, Lord, as we come to this text this morning, help us to hear the words of Christ. Help us to take them seriously. And, Lord, by your Spirit, help us to consider if we ourselves are repentant people. Be with us, Lord. Be with me. Help me to communicate clearly the teaching of our Lord. And, Lord, may what I say only agree with your word. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week, uh, we concluded with Jesus condemning his generation for their lack of response to John the Baptist and even to Jesus' own ministry. He compared them to children in the marketplace, right, who are unsatisfied with what John and Jesus are and do. And now, as we see in our text this morning, Jesus turns to speak to the cities of Galilee, to specific cities, uh, this this word Matthew uses uh, in the Greek, denounce, right? It's, it's a reviling criticism in some contexts or a proclamation against somebody, which is what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing a complaint, a charge against these cities. And Jesus is very specific in his targets here. He doesn't just say, woe to you, Galilee. He's very specific. Three cities in particular are in his sights. In these cities, Matthew tells us in verse 20, are the cities where most of Jesus' mighty works had been done. Right? These are the cities where Jesus spent the most time doing wonderful miracles, teaching, healing, casting out demons, raising the dead. These were the hot spots of his supernaturally divine activity. These cities. And now Jesus is turning to denounce them for a very specific reason. And Matthew tells us, they did not repent. They did not repent. Despite all that they had seen, despite all that they had witnessed Jesus do, despite all that they had heard him say and everything that had occurred in their midst, they did not repent. And that is what has stirred Jesus up to denounce them, their lack of repentance. Now, uh, the dictionary tells me that unrepentance is not a word technically in English, um, but it's a way shorter thing to say than lack of repentance. It's much easier to say than contumacy or recalcitrance. So I'm going to keep using unrepentance. Um, the the uh, English sticklers, please forgive me. Um, but the main sin, the basis of Jesus' charge here, what has grieved him deeply and stirred him up in indignance is their lack of repentance, their unrepentance. But in order to understand the significance of unrepentance, we need to understand what biblical repentance is. What is Jesus looking for here? What is true biblical repentance? Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about repentance, right? Repentance is not merely saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is not just confessing sin. Repentance is not trying to make things right. Repentance is not asking for forgiveness. These are all parts of the process of repentance, but they in and of themselves are not repentance. Uh, Thomas Watson, uh, who's my favorite old dead guy, in his excellent work, The Doctrine of Repentance, we had it uh, as the book of the month a few months ago, Doctrine of Repentance. Uh, He defines repentance so helpfully. He says, repentance is a grace of God's spirit by which a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. It is a Grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. That definition is great because it tells us all the components there. One, repentance is something God produces, right? It is a grace of God's Spirit. Two, repentance is a gracious thing. It is a blessing. Right? We we think of repentance as a, as a negative thing sometimes. How dare you tell me to repent? But repentance is actually a blessing, it is a chance to receive mercy. So repentance is a grace that God's Spirit does in who? In sinners. Perfect people don't need to repent, but those who have sin need to change, right? And What happens, what does God do in the heart of a sinner? He inwardly humbles them. So God's Spirit in repentance brings a sinner's heart low, humbling him, I am broken over what I've done, and visibly reformed that Inward humility that God's Spirit produces leads to what? Outward change. Outward change, right? That's biblical repentance, a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So genuine Christian repentance, in other words, is something God's Spirit produces in us to humble us over our sin, which results in a changed mind about our sin and ourselves and a changed life regarding that sin. Uh, Watson goes on, he's a great pastor, right? Thomas Watson's an excellent pastor. And he gives us six ingredients of true spirit-produced repentance. Um, And and they're worth writing down. Even if you don't write down all the the information that goes with them, they're worth writing down. Six ingredients of true spirit-produced repentance. One, a truly repentant person has sight of their sin. They have sight of their sin. They see and understand their personal sin in a situation. They can identify it. I sinned against God or against this person in this way. I lied. I was angry. I was jealous. I was greedy. I was covetous. I was lustful. I committed this or that, right? Specific sight and understanding of sin. Ingredient number one. Number two, sorrow for sin. A truly repentant person is grieved not about the consequences of their sin, right? Oh no, I got a ticket because I ran a stop sign but over the sin itself, right? It's it's beyond, you know, I'm upset uh, that my wife won't talk to me because I hurt her feelings, right? In other words, I'm upset that there's tension now. That's worldly sorrow. Genuine sorrow for sin is I have sinned against my wife and against God. Big difference, right? Big difference there. Number three, genuine repentance involves confession of sin, A truly repentant person is willing and able to confess their sin specifically, naming it to the parties they've offended, God and man. That's not easy to do sometimes, but it's necessary. Number four, a truly repentant person has shame for sin. They are ashamed of their sin and humbled by it. They're not proud of it. They're not trying to justify it. They are broken by their sin. Number five, hatred of sin. True repentance involves Hatred of sin. Again, hating the sin itself. I hate the fact that I do this. I hate that sin. I hate how it grieves God and how it hurts others. I hate that sin. And sin can be fun sometimes, right? So turning to that hatred of sin is necessary for repentance. We must hate our sin to repent of it. And number six, turning from sin. There's no repentance if there's no effort to change. There is no repentance if there is no effort to change. A truly repentant person makes purposeful, difficult, and God-honoring steps to not repeat that sin again and to make right what they have done wrong. These are Watson's six ingredients for true repentance. They're very helpful to measure our own responses with, aren't they? We can look and say, man, am am I there? Because here's the thing, you're missing one of those ingredients, Watson says, you're missing genuine repentance. If one of those ingredients is not there, it is not spirit-produced, genuine repentance. Worth writing down. I'd say worth reading the book, but I'm biased. Um, But I think Watson is exactly right and deeply, deeply biblical. So that's true repentance, right? Unrepentance, therefore, is the opposite of that, right? It is a refusal to humble yourself before God and man in order to pursue righteousness, it is a, a, a determination to go your own way, to do what you want to do. It is the resistance of the call to repent. If a person makes eternal changes but they don't hate their sin, that's unrepentance. Right? If they are sad about their sin but make no changes, that's unrepentance. Right? If they confess their sin but show no evidence of wanting to do the hard work of repenting and changing to validate their confession, that's unrepentance. And that is the sin of these cities here in Matthew chapter 11. This was the great external sin. They did not repent. They did not repent. And unrepentance is bad. But what unrepentance reveals is worse. Unrepentance is just the fruit of the tree. What's the root? It's unbelief. Unrepentance is the fruit that springs from the root of unbelief. It's a dangerous, dangerous tree. Unbelief is no small sin. In fact, Charles Spurgeon remarked this in his uh, characteristic way about unbelief. He says, This is the monarch's sin, the quintessence of guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes, the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah. It is the A1 sin, the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work of the devil, unbelief. Unbelief. And unbelief produces unrepentance. And that's why, for example, when, when it comes to church discipline, right, the occasion for church discipline isn't a particular sin, right? You lied and now you're under church discipline, right? You, you, you got angry and now you're under church discipline. It's not even a repeated stumbling, right? Well, you lied again, then you lied again, and you're really struggling with that, no. Matthew 18 makes clear church discipline is for unrepentance of any sin. Refusing to repent from any sin is what Jesus mentions in Matthew 18, because why? Unrepentance reveals unbelief, and unbelief is dangerous and damning. Unbelief kept the Israelites out of the promised land, according to Hebrews 3, and it will keep a soul out of heaven. So Jesus' condemnation here of these cities is not about a small trifling matter. It is about, in some ways, the greatest sin they could commit. Unrepentance springing from unbelief. But it's interesting here, right? Because Jesus is going about this in a way that we wouldn't really uh, consider. We tend to think about repentance at an individual level. That's something an individual does for their sins. And that's true, right? That's where we do the work of repentance as individuals. But Jesus is talking about entire cities here. He's talking about groups of people as a whole. This is corporate repentance that Jesus is addressing here. And this this idea of corporate repentance is one we may be less familiar with, right? Because we we don't see cities repenting, do we? I mean, I can't think of the last time I heard of a city in the United States of America completely turning to Christ in humility, right? So we're very unfamiliar with this concept. And, and, and really, you know, in our, in our own uh, weak faith, we think that uh, such a phenomenon might even be impossible in our society. But we do have an example biblically of, of an entire city repenting, and that's Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. Now let's think about Nineveh's response for a minute. This may help us understand what Jesus is looking for from these cities. Nineveh's response was incredible. Jonah comes in and preaches, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's hardly hardly the level of teaching we've received from Jesus, right? Or that these cities received from Jesus. But what did Nineveh do? They acknowledged their sinfulness. They acknowledged that God was in the right to judge them and do as he pleased. And they humbled themselves before God. Sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Jonah 3 5 says, The people of Nineveh believed God, right? So there's faith. And what did that do? They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They believed God. They were humbled in their hearts. And there was visible change, right? From the least to the greatest. The whole city was humbled before God in repentance. It's an amazing thing, right? An amazing thing. Uh, One one commentator speculates, you know, we we think that Jonah being swallowed by a whale is the miracle of that city, or that that story. But really, the most miraculous thing is the entire repentance of Nineveh. A citywide repentance is characterized by believing God's message and the the entire city responding in humility from the least to the great. But no such response was seen in these Galilean towns. They saw so much more than Nineveh. They heard so much more, right? They saw Jesus' power. They saw his might, his authority. They received his compassion, but they did not repent. They didn't respond to his works, to his person, to his message. There was no real response from them at all. They remained in their unbelief, which was demonstrated through their unrepentance. And so in the following verses here, starting in verse 21, Jesus begins to mention these cities by name. He starts in verse 21 by saying, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are the first two on Jesus' list, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Uh, These cities are on the northern shore of Galilee. Chorazin was an agricultural town. It was about two miles back from the actual shore. uh, And there, there was a lot of wheat production there. Bethsaida was a fishing village. It's actually the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Jesus pronounces woe upon these Galilean towns. And we're familiar with this exclamation in our own culture, woe is me, right? But this is actually a Hebrew exclamation of judgment and calamity. is what Jesus is is referencing here. Sometimes it's a statement of one's own misery, one's own own horrible condition. We think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the glory of God in heaven and he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah realized he was in A dangerous position. But other times it's a statement of judgment upon those who are opposed to God. Like Micah chapter 2 verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. And it's that second usage that we see here in verse 21. Jesus pronounces woe against these cities. Because in their unrepentance they have aligned themselves against God. And to back up this proclamation, Jesus compares Chorazin and Bethsaida to two Old Testament cities, Tyre and Sidon. Now, those names may be a little unfamiliar to us, but not to a first century Jew. These two cities were famous. They were famous Gentile cities, the cities of the Phoenicians. Um, They were located on the coast uh, in naturally occurring harbors, and this let the Phoenicians build this amazing uh, shipbuilding and sailing industry. They became wealthy merchants because they could trade with faraway lands. They could transport goods. They became very, very rich. But in time, these cities, Tyre and Sidon, would become, uh, in the words of one commentator, symbols of arrogant oppression to Yahweh and his people. So when it, when it, uh, the, the audience of Jesus here hears Tyre and Sidon, they're thinking that, those proud cities that opposed God. And these cities are actually mentioned several times during the prophets. Just turn with me over to Joel chapter 3 real quick. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 4 through 7. This is part of a passage that is about God's judgment upon the nations. But Tyre and Sidon are mentioned specifically here. And here's what Joel pronounces against them He says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, in all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own heads swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold. Have carried away my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. This is a judgment upon Tyre and Sidon for how they treated God's people, and as a result, how they treated God. And we see in history that these cities came under the judgment of God. They were conquered in the 4th and 5th century B.C. by Alexander the Great. So when Jesus in Matthew 11 brings up Tyre and Sidon, he's not bringing up these wonderful paragons of righteousness, right? These very moral, upstanding cities from the Old Testament. He's bringing up these arrogant, wealthy, idolatrous cities. And that's what makes his words here in verse 21 pretty shocking. He says, if the mighty works done in Bethsaida and Chorazin had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. Tyre and Sidon are these idol-worshiping, arrogant nations, and yet Jesus says they would have repented unlike you if they had seen my works. That's a pretty heavy statement for Jesus to make. That their guilt is not nearly as great as Chorazin and Bethsaida. After all, Tyre and Sidon never had the opportunity to see the mighty works of Jesus, did they? They never heard about the coming Christ. They never had the knowledge. And that's what makes Chorazin and Bethsaida's lack of repentance so much more damning. I mean, it's pretty incredible that the very people who are supposed to be the covenant people of God are in a worse position than Tyre and Sidon. And so we see Jesus bringing up the the inevitable conclusion of this in verse 22. (laughs) I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. These Galilean cities... Which witness these amazing things will be judged more strictly and punished more seriously because of their unbelief and unrepentance. And in one sense, again, it's hard to fathom that you know, these idolatrous pagans would receive a lighter judgment than the people of Israel. But Jesus' statement here actually reveals some important realities about the judgment and justice of God, and number one, it reveals that God will judge all people, God will judge all people, individually and corporately on the day of judgment. God will judge nations, and He will judge individuals on that last day. All people will be dealt with in the courtroom of heaven. All people are accountable to God. Jesus' statement here also reveals that God's justice occurs in degrees. It occurs in degrees. His punishment and wrath is not one size fits all. But he takes certain factors into account. All sin is sin. But not all sins are equally destructive. Not all sins are equally terrible. Not all sins are equally heinous before God. Number three, it reveals that God's judgment takes knowledge into account. Right? Tyre and Sidon did not have as much knowledge as, as uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida. God's judgment will be less strict on unbelievers who know less about him and about the gospel. And it will be more strict on those who know more about him, who may even confess the gospel but then reject it. That's why apostasy, turning away from Christ, is so serious because God judges according to what we know. Number four, it reveals God's judgment takes opportunity into account. Those who have less opportunity in this life to hear about Christ, to believe in Him and repent, will receive less severe of a judgment. But those who have had more opportunity to turn to Christ and and repent but do not will be judged far more strictly. It's higher in Sidon, had much less knowledge and opportunity than Chorazin and Bethsaida. And so God's judgment upon Chorazin and Bethsaida will be much, much fiercer. And friends, consider the seriousness of Jesus' words for a moment here. Consider the implications of what Jesus is saying. Uh, Many of us have sat in church for years, some of us for months, right? Some more, some less, but many of you have heard God's word. You've heard the gospel. You've heard it again and again and again, right? We, We have knowledge. We have knowledge. And up until this day, we've had opportunity. We've had opportunity uh, to come to Christ. But if you have not come to Christ in true faith and repentance, regardless of what you confess, if you have not actually come to Christ in faith and repentance, if you have not actually turned from your sin to trust in Christ, do not wait. Because you have knowledge, but you may not have any more opportunity. You may not have any more opportunity. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have another breath. Now, Some of you may may wonder, well, how do I know if I've done that? How do I know if I've done that? And there's a couple marks of a a true conversion we could say. One, do you love and trust Christ more than yourself? Do you trust Him more than your own works? Number two, do you hate your sin? Do you hate your sin? Not are you perfect, but do you hate your sin? Number three, do you believe that God's promises are for you? There's other things there, but if you are genuinely trusting Christ and genuinely trying to not sin and follow Him by His help, that's good, that's good, right? But here's the thing, repentance doesn't uh, just occur the moment a person becomes a Christian. It's not a one-time thing. Martin Luther said, the life of a Christian is one of repentance. In other words, we are to continue repenting as we need to, continuing repenting from sin moment by moment. Are you a repentant person? Jesus' words here also make clear to us, the implication is that if a a brother or sister is unwilling to repent of their sin, then they are in a dire, dangerous, and potentially soul-destroying place. Unrepentance is, again, the chief fruit of sin. And so we must go to our brothers and sisters who are in that place and plead with them to repent and turn back to obedience to Christ because the cost is too great for us to turn a blind eye to our brothers and sisters. Unrepentance reveals unbelief and unbelief will send you to hell. Now looking down to verse 23 and verse 24, we see Jesus repeat this same formula here. 23 and 24, but this time he targets the city of Capernaum. Capernaum's a pretty well-known city, uh, and we actually saw Jesus spend most of his time in Matthew 8 and 9 in Capernaum. He lived there, in fact. Um, so most of the mighty works we've seen him do have been in Capernaum. But Capernaum did not repent. The people marveled. They were amazed at Jesus' miracles. They, they wondered at him and his works, but they did not repent. Now, God does not anywhere command people to find him interesting. God does not say, yeah, you know, be curious about me. Think think I'm kind of neat. That's not what God commands people to do. God commands people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to him. God is not concerned if you find him interesting, right? God wants you to turn to him in faith and repentance. But Capernaum did not do this. Just like Corzin and Bethsaida, they did not turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And in 23, Jesus poses a question to Capernaum Will you be exalted to heaven? And we see the answer uh, that follows here. But this is a citation of Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. Turn there uh, with me if you would. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. This Chapter in Isaiah is primarily a prophecy against Babylon, who would come and conquer Judah. Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 15. This would be the taunt that the people were supposed to say against the king of Babylon. And here's what we read starting in verse 13 You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now again, Isaiah is prophesying against Babylon here, and, and this particular portion of Isaiah highlights Babylon's desire to be as great as God. This is this is wicked pride. Wicked pride. I will make myself as great as God above the heavens. And really this citation from Isaiah, this this comparison to Babylon that Jesus is making, reveals that the chief issue behind Capernaum's unbelief and unrepentance is pride. It is pride. Now think about it. How how does pride factor into this? Pride keeps our hearts uh, unrepentant. How? Well, pride keeps us from humbling ourselves before God and before other people because we end up being too concerned about keeping a good self-image or we're we're concerned about keeping a good private self-image. That's pride. And it keeps us from humility, which is necessary for repentance. Pride keeps us from submitting to God and His commands. After all, we think we know better than Him. Right? That's pride at work. Pride keeps us from turning from our own way because we say, no, I I've got this. I can do this. Pride is a deadly spiritual poison that led to Babylon's downfall. And it seems that it strengthened Capernaum's unbelief and unrepentance too. Just like it did to Babylon. And we see the cost of this prideful unrepentance in Jesus' answer. Will Capernaum be exalted to heaven? No, he says, quoting Isaiah again, you will be brought down to Hades. Pride promises loftiness, but its end is destruction. This is the death sentence here that Jesus is giving them. This is total destruction. This is an allusion to hell. And Jesus is not pulling any punches here. This is where unbelief, unrepentance, and pride Unchecked and undealt with leads. It leads to Hades. Pride is not a small sin. Pride, unbelief, and unrepentance, they can be easily masked. But they are so destructive. And just like before, Jesus compares Capernaum with an Old Testament city. But this time it's an even more shocking comparison than Tyre and Sidon. Jesus compares Capernaum in verse 23 to Sodom. If the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Now, Sodom is the poster child city for evil in the Old Testament, right? Even in our pop culture, we think Sodom and Gomorrah, we we know what that means, right? It's a place of complete wickedness, perversity, just depraved beyond imagination. A place that was so evil that God destroyed it with fire from heaven in Genesis 19. There's no other time, outside of the book of Revelation, right? No other time that fire literally falls from heaven to destroy an entire city in the Bible. That doesn't happen. Sodom wins that award, right? It's that bad of a place. And yet, Jesus says that if the works he did in Capernaum had been done there, then that city would have repented and would remain. It would still be standing. The judgment would not have come. It would have been a Nineveh situation. This is a shocking comparison to a Jewish audience. It should be shocking to us, right? But especially to a Jewish audience who takes pride in their Jewish heritage against the Gentiles, right? This is incredibly offensive. What Jesus is saying here is incredibly offensive. Sodom is is, is, uh, better than you. That is unbelievably offensive. It is a strong rebuke from Jesus. Unrepentance is worthy of such a strong rebuke. There's no excuse left for Capernaum here. right? They had abundant knowledge. They had abundant opportunity. Jesus, the Son of God, lived in their town for crying out loud. And yet they remained in their sin and their unrepentance. And so in verse 24, we find Jesus following the same formula. It would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for Capernaum. Now, is Sodom still being judged? Yeah, absolutely, right? But not as severely as Capernaum. Why? There were no prophets sent to Sodom. There were no mighty works done in Sodom's midst. Sodom had less knowledge, less opportunity, but Capernaum had so much, which made them guilty of full-blown unrepentance and unbelief. You think about it this way, right? God was more grieved by Capernaum's unrepentance than by Sodom's depravity. God was more grieved by Capernaum's unrepentance and unbelief and by Sodom's depravity. That's how serious unbelief and unrepentance is. Right? This highlights the chief place of those sins in the catalog of sin. Jesus' words in this text are, are sobering. They are sobering, aren't they? Especially when we ask, am I a repentant person? Not only have I I turned in repentance in my conversion to Christ, but have I lived a life of repentance since that point? Because anybody can change behavior. That's not repentance, right? Am I a repentant person? That's what we have to ask ourselves. It's a very bad sign when somebody is walking a path of unrepentance. It's a very bad sign when somebody thinks that they are in the right with God, but yet refuse to repent of their sin. Capernaum would have said, we're the chosen people. Right? We're we're fine. We're good. And Jesus says, couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus' words here, again, are, are sobering. But yet there is a gracious nature to them. What is Jesus calling these cities to do? What is all He's calling them to do? Repent. If you've ever repented of anything, it's a little easier said than done. But it's not that Jesus is calling them to earn a perfect righteousness. He's not calling them to sell all their stuff and follow Him around the countryside. He's not calling them to be the most religious people that Israel's ever seen. He's calling them to repent because of faith in Him. That is a gracious thing. That is a gracious thing. Now think about what the law prescribes. If you sin, you die. The law gives no chance for repentance. Christ here is offering repentance to these people. But they have not taken his opportunity. Even the most wicked and vile person can be accepted by God through Christ if they repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. And and as shocking as it is, even a serial killer can enter the kingdom of heaven on their deathbed if they genuinely repent and believe in Christ. That's how expansive the grace of God is for sinners. And yet the outwardly decent person, the very religious and pious person who never actually repents and dies in their unrepentance, reveals their dying in unbelief, and they will not be saved. Jesus calls these cities and he calls us to repentance. To repentance. That's gracious. That is a gracious thing. So ask yourself, am I a repentant person? Have you trusted Christ? Does your faith demonstrate itself through repentance from sin? Because Jesus promises judgment for the unrepentant and the unbeliever. He's very clear about that. He couldn't have made it clearer in fact in this text this morning. But he promises life. And joy and peace. And there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. There is no threat of hell for those who turn to him in faith. And repent of their sin. By laying out this warning, Jesus is in the other hand offering life. He's offering life. So wherever you may be at this morning, I don't know your hearts, but God does I pray that you would hear the voice of Christ here and come to Him if you have not. Today is the day of salvation, of repentance. You have knowledge. You have knowledge. You've heard the words of Christ. Today could be your last opportunity. So come to Him. He can save you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return To the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55 This is God's call to you. Seek him while he may be found. He stands ready to pardon and give life. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how gracious you are to even give us the opportunity to repent of our sin. Lord, a a concept that in our own society seems so archaic and old-fashioned, and yet it is relevant for us as it was for Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. Lord, we cannot repent apart from your grace and your help. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts today, expose those things that we may need to repent of, expose, Lord, those ways that we have not actually repented, but have only made half-hearted efforts. Humble us, Lord, under your mighty hand, but let us see that in repentance there is the blessing of pardon. May we not be slow to repent, Lord, when we need to, but quick. May we see it as an opportunity to have a restored relationship with you and with others. Oh, Lord, would you subdue the pride in our hearts that keeps us from, un- from, from repenting, Lord? Would you turn belief into faith? Lord, we have not seen Christ's mighty works in the same way that Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida did. But, Lord, faith comes through hearing. And we have heard of what Christ has done. So, Lord, may our faith lead to repentance and may that repentance lead to sweet, blessed communion and fellowship and relationship with You. Help us, Lord, to repent. We ask for Your help, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.